in just a few moments, but I need to, I need to get your, uh, your attention, sometimes with a real-world example. Before we go into the ancient world, I've got to start with a real-world example so you see the connections. See, that's important, because if I don't make that connection, if I just take you to the first century right away, the danger is I might leave you there. <laughs> and you go, well, that's interesting, but what do I do with that? So let me start with kind of 21st century, take you back to first, and then back to 21st, and you'll get dizzy, but that's okay. So see what the coffee's doing to me today? It's not the coffee, I'm sorry. I'm just well lubricated because I've had two, two times of this message. This is the third go. So I trust it'll be fresh, though, because you're, you're a different set of faces, so it's not old hat to me to share it again. I just want to say this, you know, if anybody is getting married this year, if you're about to be married, and I don't know if there are any of you who would fit that profile, something you don't want to do for your first Christmas together, if you're a guy, you know what you don't want to give to your wife on your first Christmas? Take it from me. You're going to laugh, but you're going to say, how could he be that dumb? But I was that dumb, okay, 23 years ago. I'll tell you the story in a nutshell here. First of all, last night, my wife was asking me to take some garbage out. I'm kind of the garbage guy at home. I take out garbages from... Day and night, it feels like, but that's just whining. I'm sorry. And she said, take this old box. Would you throw this out? And I looked at this. That box contained a wedding gift. Well, not a wedding gift. It was a husband gift to my wife on our first Christmas. You're saying, well, what was in the box? Well, I'll tell you in a second. It's kind of embarrassing. Some of you might know. I looked at the box, and she wasn't throwing the gift away, right? But just the box. I don't need this box. And I looked at the box, and I could still see the... Uh, the retail sticker on there where I had blacked out with, with black ink, the price tag. You know how you would give a gift. You don't want people to see what you paid for it. And she says, I don't need this box. And I just looked at this gift. I said, that was a cheesy gift, wasn't it? She looks at me, and I still get this, oh, it just looks right through me. But I thought it was a good gift. See, when we got married, I wasn't working yet as a pastor, but I had finished seminary. We were in between, if you will. Here were newlyweds, early 30 for me, and my wife's late 20s. And no, she's not that much younger than me, only three years. But anyway, she just looks young, perennial, perennially young. But we get married, and you know what? Didn't have a job in my field. And so we finished our honeymoon and moved back in with my dad. Boy, that's what every newlywed wants to do is, you know, go back home and live with mom and dad for a while. But that's what we had to do. And, you know, it wasn't as bad as it sounds. But I was thinking of the future when eventually we'd be on our own and we'd be establishing a home. And I thought, well, we're going to need certain things. And so I was trying to think real practical, you know? It wasn't a very romantic thought that was mine, but practical. You know what I got her? Now, come on, you can laugh at me. I'm sorry. I'm still embarrassed. I got her a big, fancy, fairly expensive rolling pin, you know, for doing stuff. And I remember when she opened it. Yeah, she almost hit me with it. I remember looking at her eyes as she unwrapped that as, as the paper came off and she looked and, and her, I could tell her heart sank, you know. And I thought, gee, it kind of was a nice gift, I thought. So you weren't happy with that, were you? That's Okay. Oh, that meant it's awful, right? <laughs> I was learning to speak in that code, you know, that means it's, it's a bomb. Anyway, I was telling her last night, I said, you know, I've seen you use this thing many times. And thankfully, you've never used it on me. <laughs> but it wasn't such a bad gift, was it? And she still looks at me like, mm. Well, we were throwing the box out last night. Good riddance. Out with the old, in with the new. That's a little catchy saying, isn't it? Out with the old, in with the new. I'm bringing that little silly story up for a purpose, not just to be silly. At the end of the book of Galatians, where we find ourselves this morning in the book of God, the Apostle Paul, in a summary way, I'm going to add to his words, if you will, just to not, not make up words, but just here's what he's saying, basically. He's saying to his friends, these believers in the region of Galatia, he's saying, friends, you grew up as Gentile believers, not as Jews, and as Jews, he says, I'm a Jew, you don't, but I'm a Jewish Christian. He said, you've become Christians, 
but you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. As a Gentile, you can turn to simple faith in Jesus and you can be born again. You can, have, you can become a new creation. He's saying out with the old, in with the new. Now the reason he had to say that is this. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had brought the good news of Jesus Christ to that region of the world. They, and these were Gentiles. They thought that the promises of God were, had, had, had nothing to do with them. They felt very excluded. And they were, in large part, from the promises that God had made to Israel. But God blessed the nation of Israel and brought the Messiah through that nation to be a blessing to the world. That was always God's plan. But they felt outside of the, the, the line of, 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 of faith or a favor with God. Paul, as a, as a Jewish believer, goes to them and says, guess what? God's message for the Jew is also for the Gentile. The Messiah that came to the Jewish nation is also to bring life. He's here to bring life to all of you. Jesus himself said that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't segregate. He didn't say, well, I'm just here to save the men but not the women, or I'm just here to save uh, those with darker skin but not those with light. He just there's no distinctions. He says, I'm here to save all who will believe. And what happened is after Paul evangelized that area and many of these Gentiles put their faith in Jesus and they were born anew, they said, wow, we're part of something that we never knew we'd be a part of, the family of God. We are included in God's divine plan for salvation for all humanity to all who will believe in Jesus. What happened, though, is there were some people that were jealous of Paul. We call them Judaizers. They crept up from the area of Jerusalem over to Galatia, and they said, you know, Paul gave you half the gospel. He gave you half of the message. You do need to, if you're to be a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus. Paul got that right, but you got to become a Jew first, so you have to be circumcised if you're a male. Well, Paul never taught that. Jesus never taught that, and Jesus was a devout Jew, but he brought a new way of, of salvation to all people. And so the old was mingling with the new. And Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians to correct the misunderstandings. Basically, false teaching had crept in. The people were being deluded. They were losing their freedom in Jesus Christ. And they thought, gee, I guess to believe in Jesus is not quite enough to be a full Christian. It's Jesus plus the Old Testament law. We've got to still be circumcised. We've got to keep some of these ceremonies. We have to do this or this or this. Because these teachers said so. Paul never said that, but the false teachers did. And they believed it. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Galatians as a corrective. To say, no, 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 no. You're losing your freedom. You're beginning to think amiss about what it means to follow Jesus. The gospel, he said, that you believed is Jesus plus nothing. Not Jesus plus religious activities. Not Jesus plus practicing the Old Testament law here as was done long ago. That doesn't even apply to you. He said that was for the Jews. Jesus has, has, has let us, he's released us from that. Even if we're Jewish, we don't have to do this anymore, he said. So he's correcting their mistaken thinking. Not easily done, easier said than done. Just uh, yesterday I read this quote from Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher who was a Christian. Kind of a deeper thought, but it's not that deep at the same time. He says this, and I think it speaks well to the context of this message. He said, Christ turned the water into wine. We remember that. That was the first public miracle that Jesus performed. He said, whereas Christ turned the water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. It has turned wine into water. What was he saying? He was saying, in essence, that historically, the church, we, we have a way of watering down the beautiful, simple, powerful truth 
of the gospel of Christ, the simplicity of the life-changing gospel of Christ. And we, we tend to complicate it. We tend to, as human beings, we, we create these uh, you know, kind of religious subsets of what it really means to be a good Christian. And, and let me get real specific. Maybe you've heard this said to you to, uh, a time or two in your life. Well, you can be a Christian by believing in Jesus, but you're really not a full Christian until you've received the, quote, second blessing. Anyone ever hear that? Or you're not a full Christian until you can show a certain sign gift. Now then you're a true full Christian. Ever, anybody ever heard anything like that? Unless you show this sign or unless you do this. Or you're not a, you can be a Christian, but you're really more of a fallen away Christian unless you belong to this particular church, this brand of Christianity that's been around since the beginning. Unless you're part of that, you're not really a full status Christian. I believe many of you have heard parts of any of those examples. And so people kind of meander and wonder, well, gee, you know, what does make me a Christian? Is it coming to church? Is it believing in Jesus and coming to church? Good to come to church, but that doesn't make you more of a Christian. It's good to pray. It's good to give. It's good to evangelize. But those things don't make you more of a saved person. They don't change your status before God. But yet, human nature is to, is to do what I call gospel add-ons. We want to tack something on. We want to tack something on to the simple truth of faith in Christ to make us feel good about ourselves, or maybe we're, we're giving into some false teaching, as did the Galatians, to think, gee, I thought I had this together. I thought I knew what it meant to follow Christ, but now I've got to, I've got to keep the Old Testament law. That was their predicament. And Paul's come rushing in. He's saying, no, wrong, uh-uh, that isn't the truth. He wants us to be free in Christ. Jesus came to set us free. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But human nature has a way of complicating what God has done so easily and so often. Let's look at the text together and, and get a sense here of what's going on. The end of this letter, this letter to the Galatian believers, was read to them. Most of the people, the recipients, the original recipients never took this in their hands like you do and read, and read it because it was read to them by one of their local pastors or leaders. It was what we call a circular letter. The Apostle Paul writes a word to the churches in the Galatian region. It goes to, it's a circular letter. It's like uh, something comes in the mail and the pastor gets it. He reads it. He reads it to the Galatians and then he dispatches it by Pony Express and it goes to the next place and it's read to that congregation and it's read to this congregation. So it's a circular letter and it gets around. Many letters of, of Paul's day were just kind of little summaries, and they were kind of lofty or fluffy even. See you later. Thanks for reading. Whatever. Not this particular letter. In fact, the end of this little book is not a throwaway section. I mean, no part of Scripture is. But it's not, it's not a throwaway lines in here or trite things. Paul is using this last, these last few sentences to really show his concern for their faith. To be, to be grounded in the, in the truth of the, the simple gospel of Christ. Look what he says at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now the truth is, as I said a minute ago, a lot of them wouldn't see that because it's being read to them. So, and he knew that. He knew they wouldn't see it visually, some of them. So he's, he's verbally saying it so it's written down that these are big. It's kind of like boldface or italics or listen to me. That's the idea here. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. In other words, pay attention. I'm restating the whole themes of my letter to you. Hear me well. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. He's speaking of the Judaizers. And he says, they're doing this only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Well, let's, uh, let's just step back to verse 11 for a moment. 
A lot of ancient letters were written with the help of a secretary. We, uh, this is a big word we like to use called an amuensis, somebody that was, could take the dictation, the letter from somebody that wanted to write like Paul. A lot of his letters were written by somebody else. He's there. He's speaking. If you read the book of Romans, you see towards the end, you see a guy by the name of Tertius. He says, I, Tertius, wrote this in my own hand from Paul. He's the amuensis. He's the secretary. Here in the book of Galatians, Paul has been dictating this to somebody in amuensis, a secretary. But here what's happening at verse 11 is Paul is taking the pen away from the scribe, away from the secretary, the amuensis, and he's writing this out. Like, I'm going to write this personally. This is from me. I want them to sense the authority of what I'm saying and the, and the, the weight of it. So he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And then he gets into the message of what he's already said to them throughout the letter. He's underscoring it. He's making this very clear. He's saying these people that have infiltrated your congregation and have said things about what it means to be a full-status Christian, he said they're doing it for the wrong reasons. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh, those who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. A little context there might help. The Jewish folks back in, in church central in Jerusalem where the early church began, you had most of the, fir- the first Christians were mainly Jews. And yet they were, to be fair, it was very confusing for some of them to think, well, do I do away with my, my history of Judaism and the practices that I've grown up with? You know, Jewish law, the law of Moses required that every Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And there were a whole lot of other things. There were dietary restrictions. It's the law, the law of the Old Testament, all kinds of different things. And so they, would, they lived in kind of two new world, two, an old world and the new world. And it was, it was hard for them not to combine them. And the Apostle Paul, as a Jew, is saying, if you have faith in Jesus, that is enough now for right standing before God. But there were these people called the Judaizers who went from Jerusalem to the Gentile areas of where Paul had been spreading the gospel, including this area, and they said, you know, you need to be circumcised. If you're a Gentile, you, you can't be a full follower of Jesus without becoming a Jew first. And Paul said, that is not, that's not the case. And so he's really attacking these people. The, the last few sentences of this little book of Galatians really comprise his parting shots at those people. It might seem a little unkind, but he's concerned about their, their well-being, their freedom. He says, they're just doing this to please the people back in Jerusalem. They're saying they can go back, these false teachers, these Judaizers can go back to Jerusalem and tell the, Jew is, the Jews there, yeah, we've got Paul's converts all circumcised now. They're following the law of Moses as well as believing in Jesus. They didn't want to go back and be persecuted, and, and, and they went up there with a message that you need to be a Jew as well as a person who believes in Jesus as a Gentile. So Paul says they're protecting their own skin, no pun intended. Verse 13, he says, For even those who are circumcised, these people who keep pushing this on you, do not themselves keep the law. Paul saw inconsistencies in their own lives. He says they simply want to boast in your flesh. I know this sounds a little bit crass, but I just want to be accurate, true to the text. He was basically saying they're a bunch of scalp hunters. He's saying, they're saying, you gotta, you got to perform this. you got to have this done. And he said, they're just like putting notches on their belts. We had so many Gentiles circumcised. We feel good about it. He said, wrong. He says, wrongheadedness. He says, they don't even keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And then look at Paul. He contrasts what the false teachers have done to that congregation with his own apostolic authority. He said, and his, his wisdom. He says, but far be it from me to boast 
They're boasting, he says, in just making numbers out of you guys and making you conform to something they think you're supposed to do. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's pointing them back to the way of freedom, true freedom, and that is faith in Jesus. For verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Mm, where have we heard that word before, that term, new creation? Second Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, For if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Out with the old, in with the new. The Apostle Paul says, Christ has set you free from laws, from regulations, from circumcision. He has given you freedom. If, if, Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. But then man-made stuff creeps up and starts to crowd out freedom in our thinking and in our believing. And that's what was happening already in the first century, and it's been happening ever since in a lot of different ways. Where people say, well, you can be a good Christian if you do this, but you've got to do this, and you've got to have this, and you've got to have this experience. Wait a minute. Where does that come from? And what is the Bible really teaching? Look what Paul says as he goes on. There's verse 16, which I'll come to, but let me jump to 17. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know what the marks were? Paul was beat up, beat down, left for dead, suffered the 39 lashes more than once, was imprisoned. He literally bore marks on his body for his devotion to Christ. And I believe in verse 17, he's contrasting his physical appearance of showing where he's been hurt for his faith, his love, his devotion for Jesus. He's contrasting what he's wearing on his body with what those Judaizers are trying to do to those, have been trying to do to those Gentile Christians. He's saying, they're trying to put a mark on your flesh. I bear in my body the marks of what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. He's juxtapositioning them. They just want to do a scalp fest. He goes, This is what following Jesus looks like. It's accepting pain and persecution, but it's standing in the truth and in the freedom of who he is. He's their example, isn't he? He's an apostle. He's got great authority. He's given them the gospel. He's the real deal. He is their spiritual father in many ways. It's been said here, I think it was Pastor Barry who said to me something recently to this effect. I really love this. You know, there's there's safety in submission. There's safety when we are submitted to godly, to the word of God and to, and to godly authority. And as long as the Galatians trusted Paul as their pastor, and he was himself submitted to Jesus and following Jesus well, they were safe in Paul's authority. There's safety in submission to that. But when they got out of that, listening to the sound, wholesome teaching of the apostle that God gave them and the word of God that changed their lives, that made them Christians, when they got away from that and, got, and stopped submitting to it and got under false teaching, they got all messed up. They got all confused. And their lives became so much more difficult than they were supposed to be. There is safety in submission. That's just a great, important truth. And they needed to resubmit, if you will, to Paul and to the good teaching that he was giving to them. Well, I need to let my slides catch up here. I need to get moving here. MacArthur said, every person, who's faced, every person is faced with the choice between the damning religions of human achievement and the saving truth of divine accomplishment in Jesus Christ. Let me pose a question for you today. You can answer this question, yes or no. Is Jesus a sufficient Savior? Yes, yes. We could shout that. Yes, he's a sufficient Savior. He's not insufficient. For you to be in right standing before the 
the God of this universe, you don't need Jesus plus something else. Church membership or baptism or whatever. A lot of good things you could add, but they don't add to your status. A lot of good things you can do, but you need Jesus plus nothing. You need Jesus plus nothing. And yet, we can get confused about that, and that's what happened in the Galatian, in the case of the Galatians. I've given you a lot of that history here. Let me just move along here without making too much time of this, but as the Apostle Paul said in the first parts of this passage we're looking at today, he commented on the false teachers. I want to make it just a short commentary and move on. He said their method is force. That's not God's way. God calls people to believe on the simple truth of who Jesus is. Did Jesus force that criminal who was dying on his right side to believe on him? You believe on me or else? No. The man said, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't win converts with force. We're not to use force. Their method was force. Their motive was fear. And I've mentioned why. They were fearful of going back to Jerusalem and not telling all of the Jewish people there that, who now believe, who are beginning to believe in Jesus, they didn't want to tell them, well, the gospel is really enough. We don't need the Old Testament. We don't need to follow the law. They didn't want to fear that. They feared that. And so they, were, they went back to say, oh, we've made a bunch of converts. They're Christians who are also following the Jewish law. And Paul says, that's just living in fear. That's not the whole gospel. In fact, it's not the gospel. And then he, he points at their inconsistencies. He says, they don't keep the law themselves, but they're trying to make... make a glory out of cutting you up, out of making a trophy out of you guys and making you obey the law. They're not consistent. And you can see the verses uh, that I'm listing there to, to bring that into completion. Their goal is to flaunt. So faith in Christ is to be an inward reality, not an outward show. The false teachers seem to be more concerned about a religion that impressed. You know, isn't it true that if you've been a Christ follower for a while, and some of you have been, I've been, do you see sometimes the danger of, of just kind of going through the appearances of looking like a strong Christian, acting like a good Christian, but not really growing, getting stuck, being on a plateau? We, kind of, we know what to say. We know the lingo. We know how to act. We know how to behave. But if we're not careful, our religion can become an outward thing instead of an inward reality. Jesus calls you to a deep, growing, intimate, personal relationship. Not to just look religious. In fact, he doesn't call you to look religious at all. If you do, great, but be careful with that, right? I hope you, you're following me there. He's calling us to a deep inward relationship with him, not an outward show that impresses people that we are somehow walking with the Lord when we may or may not be. We could be as stubborn as, as the day is long towards our, towards our Lord. We could be hard in our heart, but just play act, go through life just looking like something we're not. We want to really be careful if we're following Jesus, that we're truly following Jesus, and we're not just looking at, how do I look like I'm doing this right? How do I put on a right appearance for men and women? That, that's disingenuine, and that's what Jesus went after in the Pharisees of his day. He said, you guys are religious hypocrites. You, you say the right things. You look amazing. People are so impressed with you outwardly. He said, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He said, you're making it harder for people to find their way to heaven than it ever was. Because of all the man-made rules you're attaching to the truth of God's word. So be careful, my friends. Let's be careful. How do we discern the difference between truth and error when we are exposed to teaching? It's a pretty important question, not a new question. We've covered this before. And the first simple but very important answer is you take responsibility to learn the word. I can't do that for you. 
You can't do it for me. It's a daily discipline, isn't it, to embrace the, the, the words of Scripture and to let, it, to let it get deep into our hearts and in our minds, and it's a lifetime experience. We never arrive. We never get, become perfect at understanding everything in it. There's mysteries there. There's tension as you do the work of, of, of careful Bible study. But you know, if you never do that, you're going to be a vulnerable Christian. You're going to be misled by what every Tom, Dick, and Harry says in the name of Christ is real or true, and you're not going to know the difference. And it's easy to get swept up in a lot of falsity. There are people who make the Bible say things it doesn't say. It's not hard to twist Scripture. I'm told that bank tellers are often coached in discerning how to figure out what counterfeit money is by handling the real stuff long, hard, carefully, knowing about the threads and the textures and the look of it. So the feel of real money is so ingrained in them that without even looking at a false bill, they feel it. So this doesn't feel right. I don't think this is real. And they look at it and they can put it through other tests and see that it isn't. The more you and I know the Bible in our hearts, not our heads, just our heads, but our hearts, the more we let it go deep in us, my friends, the more we can discern truth and error as it's around us. We're safer. We're wiser. We're, we can avoid a lot of tough stuff because we're not deceived very quickly or easily. We can discern. Oh, the Word of God is so rich and powerful and able to make us wise and discerning. And then, secondly, we need to evaluate those who we listen to who are teaching us the Word. Now, when I say evaluate, I'm not saying judge them with some super harsh judgment. The Bible says we're not to judge others. And yet it tells us, let me, let me be really quick on this. When the Bible says do not judge, the word under that in Greek is krino, and it means harsh judgment, condemning judgment. You and I have no business looking at anybody and saying that person is condemned to hell. We don't have the right to say that, to feel that, to even, we don't know that. That's judgment that's forbidden in Scripture. But that doesn't mean we don't evaluate anything. Jesus says, you will know people by their fruit. Well, boy, that sounds like that's a, a lighter level of assessment, isn't it? It's not harsh judgment. It's not crino, but it's assessment. And so you and I need to look op with open eyes at the people that we listen to that teach us the Bible and to say, you know, do their lives represent credibility, faithfulness to this word of God, uh, real, realism. Do they, do they appear to be following Jesus from the best we can tell? 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said to his Corinthian friends, for even if you had 10,000 others who teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. He's saying you found faith in Jesus through the message I gave you. You can trust me as a messenger that God sent to you. And I urge you, he says, to imitate me. He was such a one that was worth following. His example was credible as the, uh, in opposite to the Galatians' experience with their false teachers. And you and I will grow as sons and daughters in the faith as we learn from effective, authentic messengers of the gospel. So the first thing, as I mentioned, is be a student of the word. You are called to know the, the word. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to go to Bible school. You have a Bible, and the Holy Spirit will teach you his word. And he wants you to invest time. God wants you to invest your time in his word. But then he wants you to listen carefully to good messengers, to learn from them, from their writings or their sharing, but be discerning with who they are. Look at their lives. Are they authentic to the best of your ability to tell that? One way to measure that is, is their message full of the cross? Paul's words, if you look at Galatians, were, again, referencing the cross of Jesus. Not Paul's exploits or his 
will or dreams or whims. He was focused on the message of the cross. Galatians has been called the crucifixion letter. If you look at those verses, you can look them up later. They're all a reference to the cross and the power of the message of the cross. And in the context there, as MacArthur says it well, the cross is not referring to the pieces of wood on which Jesus was hung. Obviously, it does include that, but it's what happened there, what God was doing with Jesus, his son, on those pieces of wood. The entire work of divine redemption that his death on the cross accomplished. It is not the fact that Jesus was crucified like a common criminal that is the offense of the cross, what the Bible calls the offense of the cross, but the truth of the substitutionary atonement which allows no place for human pride, status, or achievement. You know, the the message of the cross is so powerful, and yet it's so offensive to human sensibilities. My human nature makes me instinctively want to say, well, I can add something to what God has done. I'm trying to live to be a good person. And God, I, how many times have I heard this from people? Maybe a thousand times. Maybe not quite that many. Maybe, maybe 980. <laughs> but I've heard a lot of times people say, I'm going to get into heaven someday because I've been a pretty good person. You know what that is? That is pride. And that is self-worth or merit to say, God, you owe me this because I've lived for you more than I've lived for myself or for somebody else. It's hogwash. So your life's been better than a person who's committed a double murder, whatever. Most of us could say that. But to get into heaven, you've got to be perfect. Nobody here meets that standard. Not a one of us. You need perfection. You need Christ. And that's humbling to the human psyche to say, you know, i got nothing to offer the king, and i got to get down on my knees and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you save me only by your grace? I have no claim on heaven. All I have to give you is my sin. But Paul says you're in a good place when you can say that. Because that's where God's grace meets you then. God comes down into that person's mind and heart and fills you with joy, fills you with the life of Christ. That's how the Christian life begins. And then you don't improve it. You don't say, well, I'm saved now, but I'm going I'm to really make myself acceptable, more acceptable to God by doing this and this and this and this. No, you can please God by doing certain things for sure. But don't think you have to add merit to your faith. You cannot. You cannot do that. And that's what these Judaizers had been teaching. And so we need to get past that if, we, if we're living that way. The message of the cross is sufficient to save. It's never deficient. So the people you listen to, make sure you're hearing the, the cross. The focus is on what Jesus has done, not on what we do for Jesus to become stronger Christians. We can be careful to follow him and to know what he wants us to do. But we want to focus, we, as teachers, we better be focused on the cross and its strength to change lives. Paul's this great example to us. He displays affection for Christ, not the world. You see that clearly in that, in that very next text, verse 14. He says, far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What is he saying there? This world has lost its interest to me. It's interest in me, and I'm losing my interest in it. I'm more focused on the cross than on just this life around me or upon my conveniences and my my pleasures and my needs. He displays affection for Christ, not the world. You and I, brothers and sisters, are called to that, to be Christ-centered, focusing our minds on things above, not on things on the earth, because we're not going to be here forever. You've maybe heard that analogy I've used before. Imagine you're on a plane ride somewhere in the States. You're just going from A to B. You're sitting next to somebody. You're on the aisle seat. Somebody to the right of you is on the window, next to the window. And you make up some small talk, and you get back to your own business. You're sitting there reading or listening to some tunes. And you, but you just kind of notice that your neighbor over here is really uh, doing something curious. That person has opened up a, 
uh, a bag that uh, was brought along and has in there wallpaper and starts to put up wallpaper around their, their, their plane window and, and putting up little decorations and just making it so beautiful. Now, would you scratch your head a little bit? Would you not be tempted to say, you know, uh, you realize we're landing in an hour, right? Uh, what are you going to do with all this? <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> What's the purpose? Do you know where I'm going with this? A Christian on this earth is a sojourner. We're not going to be here forever. We're not even going to be here that much longer. We are to live for glory, for the king, for his agenda, and to love him above this world. But it's so much easier to say, well, that's the future. That might be a long time. I just want to decorate my airplane window. I just want to make this life so big and beautiful and important, and yet this isn't heaven. So don't try to make it heaven because it isn't. It's tough. It's challenging. And it's full of joy and blessings. But be careful that you're not going through life decorating the windows when your real focus and love needs to be on Jesus and his kingdom, his eternal kingdom that you are going to be ushered into at the point of, of your death here on this earth or at his return, whichever comes sooner. That was the Apostle Paul's heart. He says, this world's lost its interest in me and I've lost my interest in it. I'm crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the body, I, know, I no longer live for myself, but I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So he was an effective, authentic messenger, and he bore the marks of authenticity in his life. None of us here in the West, myself included, could point to my body and say, look at what I've done. And if I did say that, I'd be lying to you. We don't know what persecution is here. We really don't, at least not yet. But I would hope that people that we submit to, teaching that we listen to by people in the West who teach us the Bible, I hope that you and I could stand back, look at their lives, and say, you know what? I can see faithfulness. I can see that person's persevering through pain, through trouble. His or her life hasn't been perfect, but she's following the Lord. I think I could trust that person's teaching of the Word. You still want to measure it carefully, compare it with your own study of the Word. Paul was that kind of guy. He was that authentic that you could look at his life and say, this guy's the real deal. I can listen to him. I can follow him. He modeled Jesus. He bore the marks of Jesus on his body and the grace of Jesus in his spirit. And then to close, verse 16, if we want to live by the rule of truth, God's truth, God's word, his one and simple and true and pure gospel, verse 16, as for all who walk by this rule, if we submit to truth, remember we said there's safety and submission, if we submit to the truth of God, look what happens. Peace and mercy will be upon us. The fruit of the spirit will be upon us. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I'm in. <laughs> I want that. But if we walk away from the rule of God, what God's word is clearly teaching and what God's word is teaching us even through, carefully through other people, we are in trouble. We will get confused. We will get dismayed. We will get discouraged so easily. But when we live by the word of God, we bring peace into our lives. His peace and his mercy will be upon us. Father, thank you for the promise of peace to every life here. Lord, we want to go deep in it. We want to radiate the peace of Christ by living our own lives under the authority of his word, his wonderful word. Thank you for the Bible, for the truth that we can trust, that the, it is truth, and we can trust it, and we can trust in the people of, of the scriptures that you use, like Paul, to, to understand them and apply what, what you taught us through them. And there are even those on this earth we can listen to. We want to listen with discernment and be careful. But if they teach us your word, might we hear it and let it be our guide. 
that we can grow up in our faith, not be delayed in our maturity, and, and not miss out on the blessings you have. Thank you for your dear people. Thank you for each one here. If anyone is here today that, Lord, has not yet put his or her faith in fully in you, might you bring that person to see me or to see Pastor Barry after the service? Lord, we would love to, to show the, the life that Jesus is offering. So, Lord, thank you for this day now and your many blessings. Go with us as we leave in Jesus' name. And everyone said, thank you so much.